So, again, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles if you haven't already. Uh, We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Welcome, Sister Amir. Great to have you. Uh, Today, I I hope to be providing more of a a teaching. You know, it's not... A lot of people don't understand the difference between preaching and teaching. Um... Preaching is more prescriptive. And when I say prescriptive, uh, think of the word prescribe. Uh, A doctor prescribes you something. In other words, he says, this is what you must take or this is what you must do. Right? Whereas teaching is more descriptive. Um, It's telling you how to do. Or or, um, the why. The why's and the how's. <clears throat> it's showing you how. Now, to, to be certain, um, you know, teaching will have some prescriptive truths in it, and all preaching should have some descriptive truths in it. Um, but the thing that distinguishes the two from preaching and teaching is whichever one is more predominant, right? So when I'm, I'm preaching, and, and um, all good preaching should have an element of teaching, and all good teaching should have an element of preaching, um, but what distinguishes the two is whichever one is the driving force, whichever one is the steering wheel that dictates the, um, yeah, whichever one is predominant. So, for example, in street preaching, the, th- the thing that's going to be predominant is preaching, right? Um, hey, you must put your faith in Christ to repent and uh, turn from sin, so on and so forth, right? This is what you must do. Um, <clears throat> whereas teaching is, um, you're not going to really sit down and break down to them all the whys and the hows, you know. Uh, but with that said... Uh, we, we have to have a proper a, a diet, so to speak, of, of the both. Um, we should have both preaching and teaching, right? Uh, incorporated within what we digest as the people of God. And so with that said, um, l- let us get into the Word. And I, I hope to be uh, teaching you guys something. I think the unfortunate thing today is that... <clears throat> If it doesn't um, tickle my ears, if it doesn't uh, preach me happy, then I have no interest in in learning. Um, when, in all actuality, that that is a very um, unfortunate and sad uh, take to have, a, a very sad perspective to have. That is not how we're to view this. Um, we, we, we should be actually more encouraged to receive teaching from the Lord. And here's the reason why. Because if we're not taught how 
you know, someone might be preached uh, to and encouraged and then not know what to do for their life. And so you have to be taught, You ha- understanding has to be acquired. If you don't understand, then you, you can't successfully uh, walk this out. So um, we have to acquire understanding, amen? The Bible says in Hosea that for a lack of knowledge, my people perish. Um, so we need understanding, amen? <clears throat> so one of the things that... W- uh, and the last thing I want to say about this is that we we want to know what's on the mind of God. This is something that we must want to know. We must want to know what is on the mind of God because it's the mind of God that reveals the will of God. Right? You know, one of the things is, as a prophet... You know, a lot of people, and I, I can't say that I blame them because I love to be on the receiving end of receiving a prophecy, especially if I've been going through something for a long period of time and then God reveals something uh, to someone and that hits the head on the, uh, the, the nail on the head and you feel immensely blessed. Like, wow, the Lord sees my suffering. He's, you know, and, and he, he's looking upon me, he's singling me out and he's giving me direction for my life, it's a wonderful feeling. But the unfortunate thing is a lot of people want you to prophesy to them, but they don't want you, they're not as interested in you sharing the word of the Lord to them. Because, uh, you know, prophecies, they, they are wonderful and they comfort and they encourage. But the word of the Lord is the spirit of prophecy. It says the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So what what truly and predominantly builds up are the scriptures. And that is the mind of God reveals his will through the scriptures. And the unfortunate thing is the majority of people do not understand what they read. Um, discernment is lacking in the body of Christ. The ability to interpret the word of the Lord is immensely lacking in the body of Christ. Uh, so as one who has been commissioned by the Lord, it is my calling and my mandate to reveal the mind of God to you through the scriptures, through teaching it. Um, so, amen, and, and, and the more you come to know about God, the less suffering you will have to endure. See, why do people Google things? You know, it's funny today, and I'll get into my teaching here shortly, but it's funny today how many people have supposedly become experts because they Google something. You know, there's this meme. It, it, it says, uh, you know, the face that people, uh, the face that you want to give people when what they Googled was actually what you told them. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that's been my case. Uh, you know, I remember some years back I had a, uh, I would have Bible studies in my house. And, uh, 
you know, I would be teaching and there would always be someone that, unfortunately, because in many crowds you have them, is someone who wants to always discredit you and then they want to Google to, to an answer to refute you. And I seen a brother in the uh, my peripheral view uh, when I was teaching on his phone going like this and I, 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 put, I called him on the spot. I said, I already knew what he was doing. I said, what does it say on Google, bro? <laughs> and, and I happen to remember what it was about. It was about the printing press. And I said the first, uh, you know, I was talking about when uh, the printing press came out and, and, uh, and it was Gutenberg's printing press. And I said, uh, I said, what does it say uh, on Google, bro? He says, uh, Gutenberg's printing press. He read it out loud. And, and I said, what did I say? <laughs> I don't say that to boast, but I, I, I'm not arrogant. I just have confidence to know that what I'm saying is in fact true. Does that make sense? Um, what do what do people want me us to do to act humble, falsely humble, and say like, oh no, I don't know what I'm talking about? See that that's one of the most annoying things is today we think that humility is ignorance. People say, oh, unless you receive the ch uh, uh, the kingdom like a child, you can't enter. You know, okay, and then they'll they'll make a false inference from that and say, what are children? They're largely ignorant. It's like, no, that's not what Jesus was talking about in context. He was talking about faith. And faith isn't a blind faith. It's not an ignorant faith. And though you initially receive the kingdom like a child, you are to grow unto maturity. Does that make sense? It begins as receiving as a child, but it develops over time unto maturity, unto manhood. I hate to break it to people, but ignorance is not a virtue. There's nothing virtuous about ignorance. Without knowledge, your life will be sabotaged. This is why little infants are utterly dependent upon their, their parents. Because they don't know. They don't even have the con concept of knowledge. So, and then... Knowledge is progressive. So just because someone has Googled an answer doesn't make them an expert. You understand? It's a bit frustrating. <coughs> and I don't say that as an insult to people. It's not an insult. It's just know, know where we're at in the Lord. And if someone has gone further, I'll benefit from that. And don't turn it into a competition because that's what people do, unfortunately. Um, but with that said, Matthew chapter 7. Um, I, I, want, I'm I want to teach today on, on priesthood. Uh, this might be a very boring subject to some. Uh, but as I prefaced with, you know, in the beginning, this is, this is something that we need to know. This is something that we ought to know. This is something that it, it behooves us to know. And I would say 9 out of 10 people in the body of Christ are utterly unaware of this. And, and the, the mere introduction of this conversation, of this topic, is what many find offensive. Now, because it's offensive, it's not 
because it's offensive, therefore I want to teach about it. It's that I want to teach about it precisely because, not in order to offend, but because the fact that we find it offensive, when I say we, I mean the body of Christ at large, not us here particularly, there's need some, something needs to shift and change in our understanding. Because in no case should we find the word of the Lord uh, offensive. Where offense arises is when we've been taught something and, and the word of God doesn't comport with our traditions and with, our, with the theology that we've been taught. Um, <clears throat> and whether we like it or not, what we believe affects the way we live. It affects the choices that we make. It affects the decisions that we make, right? So, um, Matthew chapter 7. Wow. Praise the Lord. That's confirmation. (laughs) That's amazing. You just asked God yesterday to teach you what priesthood means. That's amazing. So let's Matthew chapter seven verse fifteen. I, I want to give you some context here. Um, okay, a, 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 the main focus will be from from verses twenty four and following, but I want to give you a little bit of context and and reading a read on the preceding verses. It says, "Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are uh, ferocious wolves." By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every tr- every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Now, <clears throat> let me quickly comment on this. It, it's It's so... Uh, never mind. I, I'm not going to comment on wh- what I want to say. Uh, we have to be. People say don't judge, and that's that's. Um, some people's hearts might be sincere in saying that, but it's an ignorant statement. Uh, ignorant in the truest sense, and what ignorance simply means is without knowledge. That's all ignorance means. Doesn't mean that you're evil. Doesn't mean that you're stupid. You can be. A very intelligent person and be ignorant in an area. Does that make sense? So, um, the, the, how can you be aware of false prophets and not make a judgment? You have to make a judgment in order to decipher between false and good prophets, right? Amen. So, if if God tells me to be aware. I must first be aware, right? I can't beware of something that I'm not first aware of. So awareness requires judgment. Now, judgment doesn't mean condemnation. I don't know why we conflate the two as if me making a judgment on a matter immediately assumes condemnation. Because it, the, when I cross a road and I check left and right and I make the judgment that it's clear to proceed and it's safe to proceed, I've made a judgment, right? So similarly, we're making a judgment about false and true prophets. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, by 
their charisma, you will recognize them. He doesn't say by their winsome personality, you will recognize them. He doesn't even say by their gifts, you will recognize them. Although, you know, a lot of people want to use this to discount gifts as if character is the only thing that matters. It's the main thing that matters. It's not the only thing. Amen. Because you might have a wonderful character, but have no gifting and no knowledge to impart to me. In which case, it is, it, it's quite reasonable why someone shouldn't follow that individual. I don't understand today why we're following people with Spider-Man outfits who don't even know the word, who just have a winsome personality, and, and everybody, they say something so shallow and everybody's like, facts, deep. It, it, it's I don't understand. Um, but hey, that's just me. But c fruit is what matters. Character is what matters, right? It's not the only thing that matters, but it's what matters. Now, I bring this up because Jesus <clears throat> is giving us context. And the context is ministers. That's what the context is. Our ministers. Both false and genuine. Paul says, we are genuine and yet counted as imposters. And, and largely today, the imposters are counted as genuine. Right? And this is what Paul says, for no marvel for Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. Is it any wonder that his children do likewise? Right? It's a crime, by the way, to impersonate an officer. It is also a crime before God to impersonate a genuine minister. If in fact you're a false, you incur greater condemnation. Does it make sense? Okay. So it says, um, let's skip down to verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, well, I would just read 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those, only the ones who, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> Hold on. Many will say, on me, uh, say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, uh, um, I don't have time to go into it, but I, I, I'm not going to go into it. But just for the sake, since we're reading it, I, I want to briefly comment on it. This is not talking about going into heaven. And you might think, what? What are you telling me? We just literally read on that day. Many will say to me, you know, you know, uh, what does it say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the king, enter the kingdom of heaven. I thought we just read kingdom of heaven very plainly. See, this is why, as I mentioned earlier, not everyone, everyone reads the Bible, but it doesn't mean that everyone correctly interprets it. See, you have to be, precision is very important, very important. And the entire statement or phrase can be altered by one word. 
One word. Um, let, let me let me give you an example. Uh, recently, I commented on YouTube, and um, I commented on Isaiah Saldivar's thing uh, video, um, and uh, he, he surprisingly responded to me. Um, but I was objecting to a, a method of evangelism that, uh, uh, that one of these kids was uh, was employing. He was exercising. And I was just saying, you need to stop. Because it was this kid uh, who was on a plane, and the plane stopped, right? And, and everybody's waiting to get out. But as you know, you can't just... Not everyone's going to get off a plane immediately. People are, are shuffling their feet like penguins out of the plane because you need to wait for people to go down the ste- steps of the plane safely. And I just... And, and well... This youngster had taken advantage of that opportunity where everyone against their will is stuck in a situation where they just have to wait. And he, he, he's preaching on the plane. And I was just saying, look, um, let's not be manipulative and hijack a situation to our advantage to where people are forced to listen to us. Because as you're reading everybody's body language, they just want him to shut up. And, and they're, they're, they're hinting that at him and he's still proceeding with it. And my point was this, in a public area, that's that's one thing, but hijacking a situation against their own will, it's, it's a bit manipulative because you know they're stuck there. And so they're kind of forced to listen to you. And, and so even if my intentions are good, it still remains at the end of the day that it's manipulation. Manipulation, even with good intentions, is still manipulation. And you can do that either by domination or deception. And you, you lever- let, me, let me share this real quickly because I, I already sense that some of you are in disagreement with me. If your child knows that they cannot get something from you if they ask you personally when it's just you and them, but when you have company over, they know that you like to look nice in front of company. So they tactfully ask you when company's over to get a certain result because they're leveraging a situation to their advantage. Is that manipulation? Yes. <laughs> so because I put Jesus in the equation, it's not manipulation? It is. I'm just leveraging this situation to my advantage. Haha, ha, you got to listen to me. You're stuck here. And lost people don't respect it. I've been evangelizing 12 years. I think I should know that they don't respect it. And they get upset. You know why? Because I've done it before in the past. And I've changed it, my method, because they don't like it. I don't like for you to not respect my free agency. And so I'm going to extend that same favor to you and ex- respect your free agency. In fact, Jesus told us, don't cast our pearls to swine. What, if you got to force them to listen, then just keep on moving. Amen? But anyways, um, does that make sense? But Isaiah Saldivar commented, he says, tell me you don't witness without telling me you don't witness because I objected to it. I said, 
I responded and I said, brother, I, I've been witnessing since he, you know, before you were even saved, perhaps before, you know, b you know, before this kid started kindergarten. So, you know, I don't, don't, don't assume stuff just be just because I'm objecting to that method doesn't mean that I don't street preach. And, and I just said this and I'll, I'll go on after this, but I want to make a point. I said, I said, I don't just talk behind the, and text behind the screen. And then he put my thing in quotations and says, says the person who's texting behind the screen, but he dropped out the word just. And he put quotations, I don't text behind the screen. I said, you're misquoting me. Be precise. The word just, if you take it out or you put it in, completely alters the entire statement. Does that make sense? Do you see how... I don't text behind the screen is different from I just don't text behind the screen. I actually have my feet on the pavement and been doing it for many years. I've been in life-threatening situations uh, uh, because, because of evangelizing. So the word just alters the entire meaning. And, and either you don't know how to read or you're intentionally doing that to make it look bad on me. Now notice... I'm, I'm extrapolating the principle from this to say this. One word completely alters the meaning. It can. With that said, coming back to Matthew, when Jesus says those who, he says, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He did not say enter heaven. Now to be certain, all those who do not enter the kingdom of heaven won't eventually enter heaven. But whenever the word kingdom precedes the word heaven, he's not talking about heaven itself as a location. He's talking about heaven as a rule on earth. That's what he's talking about. When, when we, Jesus says, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then know the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come among you. So if the kingdom of God is among them, which is on earth, then that means that the kingdom of heaven is not itself heaven. Does that make sense? So, in Matthew chapter 8, I think it is, verse 16, or it might be verses 13 through 16, Jesus talked about at the consummation of the end of the age, which was the first century, it was consummated in 70 AD, I don't have time to unpack all that, but he says the sons of the kingdom will be cast out and it will be given to those who will bring forth fruit unto God. This was the passing away of the old creation. I'm not going to go into it, but it was the first heavens and the first earth. First earth was Jerusalem. Jews understood this in the first century. And heaven was the temple. Um, and this was all a kingdom. And at the passing away of all that, when the, at the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as well as the destruction of the temple, you can read this in Tacitus, you can read this in Josephus, this is well-attested history. Um, the interesting thing is, at the destruction of the temple, there was a voice of an archangel that was heard that said, God is now departing from the temple. And there were chariots and angels seen in the sky, in the clouds. So, 
I don't know why we keep with this whole, you know, the end is almost near. No, 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 no. Jesus never spoke about the end of time. He spoke about the time of the end. And the end of which he spoke was not the end of the world, but the end of the age. And Jesus, according to his perspective, there was only two ages. The Mosaic age and the eternal age of the Messiah that began in 70 AD. When the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, were cast out of the kingdom, and all those, both Jew or Gentile, who believed on the Lord Jesus, received that kingdom. Um, I hope that this doesn't confuse you. There's so much that can be said about that. But who's the new temple? The church. Who, who's the new city? We are. This is why Jesus says, you are the city set on a hill. What hill is that? The hill is Mount Zion. This is why in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, you have not come unto Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, the company of innumerable angels, the city of the living God, the church of the firstborn, the heavenly Jerusalem. We are the heavenly Jerusalem. But people keep talking about this new Jerusalem. No, we're the new Jerusalem. We're the city set on the hill. We're that new temple. We're that kingdom. Does that make sense? But anyways, I'll continue forward. Um, nevertheless, he's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. The both Jews and Gentiles were to receive a kingdom. Okay? And Jesus spoke of this kingdom, and he says, Don't think that the kingdom can be observed with the eyes. That's what he said. He says, But the kingdom is in your midst. Or, depending on how you translate that, um, the kingdom is in you. Um, but continuing forward, um, Look at here, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Okay, so now I want to. Now I'm introducing the the topic of priesthood. Now, the reason why I I, I had given context to this to demonstrate that he in the context he's speaking about false prophets and genuine prophets, right? See, you have to understand that your Bible is not actually it was not originally broken up by chapter and verse. That was a later human invention. I'm not saying that it's bad because it's a human invention. Books are a human invention. Printing press was a human invention. It is all technology. And when I say technology, don't think of technology as just your laptop or your phone. Technology uh, can be something as simple as the printing press. That's technology. It helps us to advance and do things more efficiently and faster. Right? And that's a good thing. But... You have to understand that it was not broken up with paragraphs. It wasn't broken up with verses. It wasn't broken up with chapters. So we have to ask ourselves, is this 
passage here from this verse to this verse flowing with the preceding verse. And what we're asking is what's the logical flow of thought? What was the the passage first beginning to speak about? What was its topic? And, and what topic is the driving force? So the driving force is both false and true prophets. And what are prophets? They are ministers. So that when we come down to this passage here, speaking about building our house on the sand and building it upon the rock, understand that it's in connection with false and genuine prophets. Does that make sense? Okay, so with that said, y'all following? Um, <clears throat> now I want to I ask this question, what, who is the rock? Or what is the rock? The rock is Jesus Christ. Okay, now I want to demonstrate that to you. Um... Let me see real quick. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. Yes, that is correct. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. Let's look at that. And look what it says. Uh... Oh, we'll actually begin in verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Right? You see that thus far? So who was the rock? The rock was Christ. So Jesus was saying, all those who implement the teachings of Christ, the ministers who actually teach and do, the word of the Lord, are those who build their house upon the rock. Let me give you uh, one other verse. I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I want you to pay careful attention because this stuff matters. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Well, let, let's actually read. Um, verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The this there is Christ. Now, I'm going to make an important distinction. And this distinction is important. It's not upon Jesus, but it's upon the Christ. It's a very important distinction. Because when Jesus alone is mentioned, now to be certain, they're the same person. Jesus the Christ. But this is where you have to be learned Bible readers and understand that if the Bible says Christ Jesus versus just Jesus, it's for a reason. 
Because Jesus is typically emphasizing his humanity, or it's at the emphasis of, of say, his, his um, operation or, or his work, particularly the atonement. But if it mentions uh, Christ Jesus, with Christ coming before the word Jesus, or just the Christ, it's referring to his office as the anointed one. And the author is going to focus on one on one facet or the other for a purpose to make a larger point. Are you all following thus far? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the the the. The house would be upon the Christ, okay, um, which is the priesthood. Christ is high priest, but it's not at the exclusion of priests, okay, because every high priest had subordinate priests that were under the high priest. Okay, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, a couple of observations that is important to note here is, well, first of all, that it would be upon the rock, right? And the Christ is the rock. And he says, on that rock he will build his church. And the, the third well, and the third thing I want to point out was that Peter was given keys. Okay? Now, I know that a lot of people and then in relationship to the receiving of keys, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. That ability to both bind and loose was not given to every believer. I know that today, you know, guys like Isaiah Saldivar, Alexander Pagnini, uh, Mike Signorelli, all these guys always teach that everybody in the church can bind and loose. It's false. They cannot give one supporting passage anywhere in the New Testament or the Old to demonstrate that a Christian has been given keys to exercise both binding and loosing. That was only given to the ministerial priesthood. And the reason why we know that it was only given to them is because here in this context, he only has the 12 with him. And this is all centered around the topic of rocks, buildings, right? Uh, which that undoubtedly refers to the priesthood. Now, I, I want to... now. When you connect this passage here in Matthew 16 with the passage in Matthew 7, where Jesus spoke about anyone who builds his house on the rock, 
He's not talking about your personal life. I hope you know that. Let me demonstrate that to you. Y'all following this far? Because a lot of times people say, you know, the house is my personal life. And if I do what Jesus says, then my house won't come tumbling down. It's not what he it's not at all what he's talking about. Let me prove it to you. Um Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> verse. Let, 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 us, uh, let us focus on verse 2 and following. <coughs> he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Now, do you recall that Paul the Apostle says, I as a wise master builder lay the foundation? All right, so there are builders and there's buildings. And every building needs a foundation. And the house we're speaking about isn't your house, but God's house. Okay? Y'all following this far? Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So the house that is being spoken about in Matthew chapter 7 isn't the house of your personal life. It's God's house and you are that house. Does that make sense? Collectively. Amen, somebody? Does that make sense? So you individually are not the house. You're just a component that comprises the house. And it says that we are God's house. Okay. What would that, what, for what purpose? So God can inhabit it. If it's God's house, that means that God lives in it. Right? Or you can say temple. Right now, let, I'm going somewhere with this. I want you to uh, turn to um, Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty. And see, the reason why, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The reason why we're going from verse to verse. See, I, I don't like topical messages. And I've said this before. I've, I've expressed it before. Does it mean topical messages are sinful? No. But it just, it shows that men are more interested in their series than actually revealing to you the mind of God. 
They just want to follow through their teaching series. Hey, you know, our church is having this teaching series. We're going to be talking, blah, blah, blah. And and they they want to show you their vision, so they use verses to support that. Whereas expositional teaching such as this is, hey, this verse, and then let's go to this verse to support this verse, and then this verse to support this verse. It's showing you all of God's mind concerning the matter. And because the Bible interprets the Bible. That's how you come to know the mind of God. You can't know the mind of God by one single verse in isolation. Is that understood? You have to read one, you have to read a verse in all of its totality. And the more you're able to piece those puzzles together and that's what I'm doing for you is piecing this puzzle with this puzzle so you can see the bigger picture and the picture is what God wants you to see this is why just googling something doesn't work because a a Google response is going to give you a half-baked answer now it might work for something such as you know who was the father of so-and-so Right, these very black or white, but it doesn't work for everything. Now, with that said, Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty. Uh, where is this at? Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty. <clears throat> well, let's begin at verse nineteen. I, I apologize. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. There's that word again, household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, so again, we see house or household. We see building. We see chief cornerstone, or you can say rock, right? And, and who's included within that foundation? The apostles and prophets. So there is a distinction between the building that's being constructed and built and the foundation. See, it doesn't say that Jesus Christ is the is the only part of the foundation. He includes apostles and prophets along in there. Do you see that? So what then makes the distinction between the building that is constructed and the foundation well the foundation is the ministerial priesthood and the building are the sheep now let let me let me show you real quickly um because there is a difference between uh the building and the builders 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, verse 9. For we, and the we there is not all of the church. So that's another thing you have to be very careful of is when you read the Bible, don't read you into the we. Because every time it mentions the we there, it doesn't mean you. And so you have to ask yourself, well, who is the we there? The we there is the ministerial priesthood. Those who are apostles and prophets, so on and so forth. He says, we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul's already making a distinction saying, we is the ministerial priesthood. We are the builders. We are co-workers together with God. And who are we working on? We're working on you. You're the building. We're the builders. You're the building. And he says, by the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so, amen. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following says that the apostles and prophets, along with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, serve as the foundation. I'm going to say a controversial statement, but without a minister, a church a, a gathering is just that. It's just a gathering. It's not a church. And I know this rubs people so wrong. But you have to understand that without a foundation, nothing can be established. And the foundation is there for a purpose. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not the people of God. But it just means that it's nothing more than a gathering until there is an establishing of a foundation. Does that make sense? Um, because we're told today that, hey, well, we're the church. We're, we're, you know, and what we mean by that is it's a free-for-all. That, that's largely what a lot of people mean by that. And I don't have to be accountable. I don't need a, a, a minister in my life. I don't need a pastor. That could not be further from the truth. Uh, a, building, a, a, a company or an organization is not going to exist without a CEO. So, <coughs> um, there cannot exist a house unless there's a foundation to the house. And we've learned in Hebrews chapter 3 that the house are the people of God. Paul like himself, likens himself as a builder. Right? Now, does it, you know, I don't know if you guys watch Ray Comfort at all. He evangelizes a lot. But he asks this question in order to disprove atheism. He says, can a building build itself? Or a painting paint itself? No. The obvious answer is no. Right? So if you see a building, you know that there was a builder. If the people of God are a building, then where are the builders? Right? That should be 
a, 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 a natural question that we ask. So then that means then that you reading the Bible isn't enough. And I know that this is where you have to unlearn a lot of religiosity. Now, is it important and is it essential? Absolutely. Yes, 100% it is essential. You should read your Bible. But the point, though, is that um, who enforces it? Okay, think about it in terms of law. Okay, there's a law, right, in your land or wherever you're located. There's a law. Should you be informed on the law? Yes. Why? So you don't break it. But do you enforce that law? And do you interpret that law? Do you execute the law? No, you don't. There are exclusive people who have been authorized and received authority to both interpret, create, and execute laws. Right? The ones who execute it are law enforcement. This is where the whole binding and loosing comes into, into play. In Matthew chapter 16, he has given the apostles the authority to bind and loose. Now, I would, I, it would interest you to know that that term is also found in Matthew chapter 18, where he has given the apostles authority to excommunicate people from church. In other words, they have authority to execute the word for the purpose of ostracizing you, of excommunicating you and enforcing this word if it's not obeyed. Does that make sense? Or not so much. Um, now, now let, let me, let me, let me come now into the, the objection that people typically make. People say, oh, well, first Peter, you know, we're all priests because first Peter says, you know, uh, you're a royal priesthood. Now, let it, let us go there. I, I want to show you guys something and I want to answer this objection. Um, It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Because people do get offended by this and say, you know, uh, you know, we're all priests. You know, the interesting thing is, you know, the priesthood of all believers wasn't taught until the 1500s by Martin Luther. He is the one that popularized it. And now I'm not saying that there wasn't good, wasn't good things that he did, because there were certainly bad things that were going on in the Catholic Church. And he was right for addressing those things. But by attacking what was bad, he also ushered in what was not good, too. Um, and I know that this is hard for a lot of people to receive, but let me, let me show you why. Um... Let, let me say, let me, let me say, let me put it this way. Let me, what, 
how would you like it if we adopted the view of the parenthood of all people? We're all equally parents. And this includes your children. It makes no sense. Because what that then means is you lose your authority as a parent. That now equalizes you to your children. So who, who decides who gets the... Uh, who gets the uh, enforce the rules in the church or in your house, right? So if you were equal to your children, where does that put you at? Right? Um, but look at First Peter chapter two verse nine. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, two things I want you to, I want, I want to point out here. Number one is that, well, three things. Number one, it says royal priesthood. Number two is it doesn't say holy priesthood. It says holy nation, but it doesn't say holy priesthood. Number three is that Peter is actually drawing this from Exodus. Okay? Now in Exodus, the context is God it is Moses telling the people of God that they are all together a royal priesthood. Now, why is that important? Because undoubtedly, in the Old Testament, God had a holy priesthood and it was the Levitical priesthood from the Levitical tribe. But in Exodus, God calls all 12 tribes a royal priesthood. So there is a royal priesthood which are all of believers. But within that royal priesthood, God has set apart as holy a holy priesthood. And let me show you that. Um, just so that you know that uh, I'm not lying. Y'all following thus far? It's Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> A Exodus chapter 19. Verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. So this is to all the descendants of Jacob. All of them. What you are to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me and fully keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sound familiar? First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Right? A holy nation. So, okay, all the descendants of Jacob is what? Priests. And a holy nation. Okay, then where does that then leave the Levitical tribe? Which we know God had exclusively called out from among the descendants of Jacob 
as the only holy priesthood. Is this beginning to make sense? So people go to 1 Peter and say, see, look, we're all priests. But now, could have one of the 11 tribes at that time say, see, no, look, Levi, uh, uh, the Levitical priests, no, God called us as priests too. He said it right there in Exodus 19. We don't have to submit to you. They could not say that. Does that make sense? <clears throat> or no? So, there is a royal priesthood. Among that royal priesthood, God had set apart a holy priesthood. Um, and the same that applies uh, in the old is also applicable for the new. Now, someone might respond and say, Oh, but that's Old Testament. Jesus did away with that. No, he didn't. He didn't. And let me prove it to you. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> Unfortunately, and, and this is the very this is one of the most frustrating things as, as a minister of the Lord, is that and I, I don't I don't use that lightly. First of all, I didn't even call myself into this. I didn't choose this for myself. God called me. I have no other choice. Paul himself said, uh, I can preach voluntarily and I'll have a reward. He says, but I'm compelled. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Why? Because he had been commissioned into this against his own choice. He didn't have a will. He can will to say no, but there's consequences. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it isn't just because, oh, you're just saying that because you're one. No, I'm saying that because the word of the Lord says this. And we have ignorant folk today, be even behind the pulpits, who are only regurgitating and vomiting to the people what they've been indoctrinated to believe. And, and I can say along right there with them that I used to believe that stuff too because I knew no better and I was taught it. But when I began to question stuff and see how things were not adding up, I said, you know what, that's not what the Word of God actually says. And at that point, you have to be, you have to be willing to displease people even though the majority actually believe something and you're going to be rejected. So you have to make a, 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 a conscious decision. Am I going to please the Lord and obey his word and believe what he says or am I going to believe what other people say even if they dislike me for it? Because what are we hearing today? By Isaiah Saldivar, by Alexander, by Mike, Signor, all these guys, they're saying, you can do it too. You need to start going out casting out demons. You need to start evangelizing and shame on you if you don't. And, and, and what began to puncture faith in that belief early on was, I'd scratch my head and I would look at some of the people in the church and I'm like, I can't ever see them preaching and holding crusades. Why? But people are saying everybody can do it. 
and just being realistic, considering the weakest amongst us. And it's because God didn't call them to do that. And we need to stop acting like he has. You know why? Because you're going to start damaging people if that's what you keep telling them. And you're going to impose a burden and a guilt upon them that should not be there. Right? And this is what I always point out. Okay, all right. Okay, go ahead. That's what you're supposed to do? All right, then how many people have you baptized? Because if you're called to ministerial priesthood, you should do what Matthew 28 has spoken about and is baptized, go to all creation. Go ahead. Start baptizing and start teaching them. Obviously, we're not going to expect people to do that, right? And, and if you don't have any numbers to your baptism, that means you're disobeying. Because that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? Making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. How many have you baptized then? Oh, none? That means you're disobedient. You're disobeying Jesus. Obviously, not everybody has been called to do it. And we need to lay that down and say, no, God has called you to business. God has called you as a fashion designer. God has called you to as a barista. God has... God hasn't called everybody to be an evangelist. God hasn't called everybody to do that. And then we got this ridiculous teaching out there. Well, God may not have called you as an evangelist, but he's called us all to evangelize. There's no difference. (laughs) We don't really stop to think about how ridiculous that sounds. If I say, oh, God hasn't called me as a police officer, but he called me to police. What difference am I saying? Come on, like it's 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 simple, it's common sense. But because it goes against the grain of our traditions, we don't want to reject it. And I'm saying to you, it doesn't matter what we've been taught, it matters what God's word says. Right? <clears throat> um but look at Matt, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. People say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament. Jesus did away with that. No, he didn't. And let me let me prove it to you. It says, he's done away with the Levitical priesthood, but he didn't do away with priesthood altogether. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people established uh, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood why was there still need for another priest to come one in the order of Melchizedek not in the order of Aaron for when the priesthood is changed the law must be changed also and let's go to verse 15 well let's just keep reading he of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord um, descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, 
one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, the point of this, and I'm not going to get into this because this kind of gets complex. But let, I, I go to this passage to establish this point. Is that clearly and, and undoubtedly, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that it isn't that God did away with a priesthood. It's that he did away with the Levitical priesthood. And he introduced a new priesthood after a new order. And that order is the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? Okay. Now people say, oh yeah, okay. Well, I understand that Jesus introduced the order of Melchizedek as a priesthood. But Jesus is my priest. There's only one mediator between man and God. Now let me let me show you something. Um Hold on real quick. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Wait, hold on. Give me one second. Okay, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. And a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Now, let me ask you this question. Who was that mediator? Can, any, can anyone answer me that question? Who was the mediator of the law? No, it was Moses. Of the old covenant, Moses was a mediator between God and man. And this is what he's speaking about in Galatians. And that's fine. Um, that's what he's speaking about in Galatians 3. Let's read it again. Um, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The seed was Jesus. That that's that's. I think maybe that's what you were focusing on, sister. Um, to whom the promise referred had come. Now the following uh, verses, uh, following sentence is this: the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. So the mediator being spoken of right there in verse nineteen was Moses. Because ask yourself, who was given the law? Who was entrusted with the law? It was Moses. 
So Moses was a mediator between God and man. And Hebrews talks about that a covenant is not in force until there is the shedding of blood. Well, who established the first covenant by blood? Moses did. He established the first covenant by blood. Not his own blood, but blood nevertheless. Does that make sense? People don't understand that Moses was high priest. Why? Okay, if you don't believe me, why then did the people say, Moses, you go to the mountain because we can't tolerate what God is saying. You mediate for us. You go to God, and then once God tells you what he needs to tell us, then you come back to us and tell us what God said. Right? Amen. So, okay. Moses was a mediator of the Old Covenant as high priest. Jesus Christ is a mediator of the New Covenant. But in the time of Moses, he had the sons of Aaron and the Levitical tribes serving under him. In the New Priesthood, the New Covenant, Jesus serves as high priest and he has his priests serving under him to then bless the people. So it goes, God, Moses, Aaron, his sons, and the Levitical priesthood, all the remaining tribes of Israel. The new covenant is God, Jesus Christ's high priest, the fivefold ministers in Ephesians 4, and the rest of all of God's people. There has always been a hierarchy. And God has never removed that hierarchy. Um, and sometimes it may take our mind to do a bit of catching up. Um, now let, let me show you this also because I w- go, go to, go to Luke chapter nine. Cause people still hold on to this idea that, you know, Hey, uh, you know, but Because we're also told today, hey, you know, you you got power. You you need to uh, go drive out demons and stuff like that. When that you, you haven't been given one single commission to do that. Um, and people go to Luke 9. And then where do they also go? They go to Luke 10. And then they go to Mark 16. And let me show you that. Or they'll go to Matthew 28. But... The very basic question that they never ask themselves is this. Who was Jesus speaking to? Okay. So, let's do some basic hermeneutics here. If Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, do you apply that passage to you? 
right? When he says, you brood of vipers, you sons of the devil, do you apply what Jesus said to the Pharisees to you? No. You have to know the difference between what was written for you and what was written to you. Well, actually, in reality, none of the Bible was written to us. It was written for us. And Romans chapter 15 tells us that. I think it's Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, so that through an endurance and the encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. But if we read 1 Timothy, who was it written to? Written to Timothy, but written for us. To the Ephesians. To the Corinthians. Paul never wrote to me. Right? But now there are certain passages, even though it wasn't written to you, you are responsible to fulfill. And let me show you this. For example, the Bible says, wives, love, uh, you know, uh, 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 submit to your husbands. Uh, wife, submit to your own husband. Right? Does that command then apply to me as a husband? No. He's speaking to the wives. So the command is awoken to the wives, but is non-applicable to myself. Children, obey your parents and the Lord in all things. Do I have to obey my dad in all things? No, I'm not a child. Does that make sense? So when we read passages in Luke 9, Luke 10, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 20, where Jesus is commissioning his ministerial priesthood, don't think then that it refers to you. That you are therefore to fulfill those commands where he commissioned them to be ambassadors for the Christ. And he tells them to preach the gospel. Now I want to show you something. Look at, does that make sense? Okay, so look, Luke 9, when Jesus had called the 12 together, who did he call together? The 12. And they were the 12 apostles. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. Who did he give that power to? The 12. Now, why did he give it to the 12? Was it because they were disciples? No. He gave it to them because they were apostles. So don't, you can't, just because you're a Christian, read yourself into that passage and say, oh, he's talking to me. He's not talking to you. He's talking to the 12, but it also applies to any of those who are ministers who would believe they're on after. Because the, the office of an apostle didn't stop with the 12. They were just, now there's a distinction between them and the apostles who would believe on after because they were apostles of the Lamb who would be given 12 thrones. Now, some of you might say, Well, Judas, he, he became an apostate and he committed suicide. Yes, but Matthias, they cast lots in the book of Acts, and Matthias had ended up fulfilling that uh, office in replacement of Judas. They were given 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, people don't know this, but that was already fulfilled. 
it was speaking symbolically about uh, the judgment of Jerusalem. I'm not going to go into that, but uh, nevertheless, this is speaking about apostles. They were apostles of the Lamb that were given 12 thrones. Okay, Now, that was before resurrection and ascension. However, after the ascension, the Bible says that there were also other apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers that were given. This is why in Ephesians 4 it says, After he ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the uh, equipping of the church, and so on and so forth. Right? So, they were apostles even before the ascension. Before Jesus ascended on high. After Jesus ascended on high, he poured out the Holy Spirit and called some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Does that make sense? So, now, then, he called the twelve. Then if you look in Luke chapter 10, he appointed 70. Now, I'm not going to go into this because it gets complex. But depending on what translation you read, it will either say 72 or it will say 70. And that's because the variants in some of the early uh, Greek manuscripts, some say 70, some say 72. But I'm convinced that it's 70, and I'll tell you why. If you go to Numbers chapter 11, and we're coming to a close here shortly. Numbers chapter 11. Wait, hold on. It's in Numbers chapter, chapter 11. Yeah, it's Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. <clears throat> <clears throat> Wait. Hold on. Okay, no, let's begin at verse 16. Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. And then if you look in verse 24, it says, So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied but did not do so again. So what do we see there? Jesus in Luke 10 
calls forth 70 and gives them power and authority. In Numbers 11, God says, put together 70 elders and I will put the spirit that is on you on them so that they may share the burden of all the people. So, there is a distinction. And, and what Jesus is doing in, the, in Luke's gospel is that he's establishing a priesthood of ministers to bless the people. Do you see that? Now, I, I want to I show you in John chapter 20, he took, you know, Numbers 11, he took the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70. And then if you look in John chapter 20, Jesus does the same thing, but with himself to the 11. Look at uh, verse 21 of chapter 20. Now, by the way, Matthew chapter 28, where it's the Great Commission, Mark chapter 16, where it says, the signs shall follow them that believe, and John chapter 20 are all parallel. It's just a different author giving his perspective of the same exact event. Does that make sense? <clears throat> right? So he says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now the word send is the word apostello. It's the verb form of the noun apostolos. Apostolos means apostle. So when he's doing the sending, apostello, he is doing he it's a verb to describe the commissioning of apostles. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So Jesus was an apostle, capital A, and he he's sending his lowercase a apostles. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, this is where a lot of commentators and scholars have a difficult time uh, uh, interpreting this because they will say, oh, this was the time they got saved. Uh, no, because then what were they all up until this point? Were they damned and going to hell? No. So... What was happening is what we see in Numbers 11. God put the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the elders for their operation of priesthood so that they could function in the stead of Moses even though Moses wasn't around. Jesus is now about to ascend back to heaven so that because he's no longer around, they can be operating in that priesthood, functioning in the stead of Christ. Does that make sense? <clears throat> it says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. Okay, now, someone might say, well, wh what was Acts chapter 2 all about? Because certainly, this is after resurrection, before ascension, after resurrection. So this here in John 20 
could not be what was in Acts chapter 2, the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit to which all believers enjoy. This is different. Do you see that? Okay. <clears throat> now someone say, okay, yeah, what about Acts chapter 2? The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I thought we were all to receive power. Yes. Now let, it, let us... Uh, Actually, turn there. I, I, I'll move through this quickly. There's just there's just a lot of building blocks that I have to lay. Now, I want you to take care, full note of this important distinction. Acts chapter one. Look at verse four. Acts chapter one. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, okay, what's going on here? Obviously, there's a distinction. Because in John 20, Jesus breathed on them the Spirit. And yet, here in Acts chapter 1, they're... Why wasn't that enough to, 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 to enable them to preach the gospel? They still had the way to the blessing here in, uh, in a chapter later in Acts chapter 2. So that shows us that there is a distinction between what went on in, Acts, in John 20 and what happened in Acts chapter 2. Does that make sense? Okay, so John 20 is the, the, the receiving of their own priesthood with Jesus' departure. Here in Acts chapter 2 is the blessing that all believers will enjoy. Now, here's the, here's the thing I wanted to point out. Uh, verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay. Acts chapter 2. Now, if you look at the Greek word for power, it's the word dunamis. And all believers get to enjoy the baptism of the Holy Ghost that is there mentioned in Acts chapter 2. The important distinction I wanted to make is that they only receive power with the receiving of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. All believers do not receive authority. If you notice, that word authority is absent. At the receiving of the baptism of the Spirit, you do not receive authority. You receive power. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus commissions the 12, he gave them power and authority. And that's only what the ministerial priesthood enjoys. You do not have authority as a sheep. You have power. You don't have authority. Now, I want to show you in, Acts chapter, in Hebrews chapter 13 to prove my point. Act, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. 
Look at what it says here. Have confidence in your leaders. That kind of blows up the idea of, you know, of I only follow Jesus because I don't trust no man. That's not what the Bible tells you to do. I'm not saying don't follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But it says have confidence in your leaders. Now, if there's leaders, there are followers, right? I remember one quote says, if if you're leading, but no one's following, you're only taking a walk. Right? Because leaders exist because followers do. Okay, so then if there are followers, that means you're following a man. Right? We don't like that. We don't like how that sounds when it comes out of our mouth. Like, yeah, I'm following... Pastor so-and-so. But it's true. Now Paul qualifies that and says, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? This is what I've said before. And I don't think a lot of believers understand the true meaning of it. Is everyone's a believer until it gets biblical. Because the Bible has some pretty hard things to say. And it's not just, hey, don't go watch porn. Don't go have sex outside of marriage. Like, that's baby stuff. Like, I shouldn't even be talking about that. (laughs) How about, no, you you, got to follow a minister as they follow Christ. And you got to submit to that authority. That's where a lot of people who even think they're mature... Show how immature they really are. Look at but look at what it says. Have confidence in your leader and submit to their authority. Okay, so that means the followers don't have the authority the leaders do. And this is in keeping with Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, that parallels with Numbers 11, that the ministerial priesthood are those who received authority. Acts chapter 2, all believers receive power, but not all believers receive authority. Does that make sense? Um, Let let us also go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, To the elders, that's the word presbuteros, where we get the word presbytery, Right? Um, the same word in Numbers 11 when Moses called the 70 elders and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Right? Now, I want to I want to go down to then to verse uh, five. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Okay, so we see that again. Submission is to the elders, right? And elders doesn't necessarily speak with respect to age. Um, it speaks to with respect to office. 
Now, I would say this, though. I think we should be very careful to entrust especially very young people to the office of an elder. I'm not saying that we should put definite dates on it, but I think it's important to note that you had to be 25 years of age to be priest in the Old Testament, and you had to be at least 30 years of age to be high priest. This is why Jesus didn't begin his high priestly ministry until he was 30 years of age. Okay, so, um, you know, I think it, I think we should be very careful, especially when it comes to you know believers who have the call of God on their life, but are you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, you know early twenties. Because I think there's something to say about age; it's not completely irrelevant. But the point that I'm making though here is that age and office are not the age is not in view here; it's the office. Does that make sense? Because even Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Now, how old was Timothy? We don't know. But I do not suspect that he was 18. <laughs> I, I don't think he was in his late teens or even early 20s. I think he was you know, much older than that. Probably, you know, 25, 27, 30 years old. I don't know. But... Nevertheless, um, <clears throat> I, I want to show you one last verse. Acts chapter 13. Authority comes to sum with submission to authority. <clears throat> Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. John also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. I'm not going to read all the names. Um, but verse 2, we'll skip over to verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas, and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, the word set apart is an action. Now, the word hagias, which is, a, it's, it's the word holy, right? It, it speaks with regards to set apart or separate, uh, separateness or cleanliness, Right, that's what holy means. Um, and so they were being set apart for a holy work unto the Lord. Now it says, to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So it is imperative that ministers, in order to operate in authority, have to be submitted to it and and that is recognized by the laying on of hands and a commissioning. Does that make sense? This is why Paul writes to Timothy and tells Timothy, lay hands suddenly on no man. Why? Because Paul does instruct Timothy and says, 
that those who aspire to be a, an overseer must not be a novice. In other words, they must not be a recent convert. They must not be relatively new to the faith. So therefore, don't lay hands suddenly on them. Don't be quick to do that. Give it some time. Even for those who do have that call, they have to be tested. This is why I'm against, you know, someone just recently gets saved and give their life to the Lord. And the first thing they do is go out on the street and start preaching. That is the last thing you should think about doing. And that sounds counterintuitive because people think I'm saying they just let the world go to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Bible has certain qualifications and it's necessary that such people are tested because what happens if it turns out to be the case that we allow guys like Dore Love, right, who has a popular name, is invited on news stations to just go out there and he's smoking weed and he's fornicating. And now he mars the image of Christ and brings reproach. And even if he had a call, no one tested him. He submitted to no one and no one laid hands on him. And he's a big name along with David Lynn. The, the guys out in, from Canada. Well, that's what happens when people don't want to listen to anybody. Okay, so does that make sense? <clears throat> um, now, as we close, there's just a couple of things that I want to mention in closing. You know, Paul said, you know, in Mark 16, it talks about the signs that follow. Right? People say, what about the signs that follow? You know, to them that believe. You have to remember that, again, this parallels with John 20, parallels with Matthew 28. And if you read in the context of, of, of Matthew 28 and Mark 16, what will you find? You will find that there were some who, when Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection, that some doubted. So in the context of the 11 who doubted, he says, to them among you who believe these signs shall follow. Because he was rebuking them for their unbelief and was calling them to have faith. And now this is why if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says the signs of an apostle followed me. So what does that have to do? Okay, so why does he call it the uh, signs of an apostle? Because there are some signs that don't follow believers. It follows ministers. So, um, now, I'm not saying that you can't speak in tongues. That's not what I'm saying. Because tongues is a sign. But it's not an apostolic sign. It's a sign for all believers. And it's a sign that you have been baptized by the Spirit, right? Um, now, you might say, well, why is tongues mentioned in Mark 16? Well, because it's speaking about different tongues there. It's the tongues that you fluently preach under the inspiration of God, a foreign language to another people. It's not your prayer language in your private time with the Lord. 
And this can happen. So there are three operations of tongues. There's tongues that need to be interpreted. There are tongues that you use for your prayer language. And there are tongues to preach fluently to another tribe of people. In, in which language you don't, you, you don't know how to communicate. Does that make sense? And it's that tongue that follows the ministers. And if, if you read church history at all, or, or you know, you're familiar with many testimonies. I, I know, I know a pastor personally who has a brother in the Lord who, who's an evangelist who had gone to Mexico. He is a white man, knew nothing of Spanish. His interpreter didn't show up, and God overtook and enabled him to preach an entire hour in Spanish under the inspiration of God. So, um, amen. Um, So let me quickly just lay out some of the things that the authority there is for. The authority is to preach the word and to teach it. The Bible says in uh, Malachi, it doesn't mean that you can't testify about God or, you know, share your testimony or or speak about the goodness of God in your life. It doesn't mean that. It means shepherding the people of God with the word of God. Only ministers have been given that authority. Um, Baptism is also another thing that requires authority. Anointing with oil. Uh, over the sheep of God and laying hands on them is also another thing you need authority for. This is why in James chapter 5 it says, it says, if any among among you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. If you read it, I think it's Mark chapter 6, Jesus gave the, the 12 oil. And if you look in the law, it was always the priests who had the oil. Um, so, and then as far as excommunication from church, uh, that's also another thing that they have authority to do. Now it's not a baseless thing or a groundless thing. Like, Hey, I just, I don't like you get out of, no, there has to be a proper protocol. And if they're persisting in sin, you know, there's, there's a certain protocol that they have to follow. And, and then if it gets to the point to where, um, the sinning party doesn't listen, then the elders then take care of it and then excommunicate the person. Um, and now the important thing to take note of that is that whatever is bound on earth is bounded in heaven. So people fail to realize this. But if it gets to that point and the eldership comes to that decisive decision, God himself is backing that decision. So you can't just hop to another church and say, I'm going to evade the people who cast me, excommunicated me out of here because as far as it's concerned in heaven, that's still on record. So it doesn't matter where you go. That's bounded. Does that make sense? Um, Okay, let me explain this to you. People think that they can just go and have sex and then they're married. It's nonsense. You need a, a minister to marry you. Because a minister has that authority. Now, 
you you let's say a, a person uh, you know a female and a male they love each other and, and they're like oh they're like oh god they pray to god please recognize this as a marriage we want to marry each other will god recognize that nope nothing is bound in heaven you need a minister to officiate that as an ambassador of god who legislates on earth and until he legislates that heaven won't execute it until he binds that it won't be bound in heaven does that make sense so the whole i don't follow man stuff is garbage god does nothing on earth except through his ministers this is why in second chronicles chapter 20 verse 20 it says he does nothing but what that to which he reveals to his servants, the prophets. So, you know, Jesus, he says, just as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Paul says, now we are ambassadors of Christ. We beseech you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. What does he mean in Christ's stead? He says, in other words, as if Christ himself was present, because we're operating and functioning in his place, be reconciled to God. We're the one that helps you to be reconciled. That's why in Romans says, how can they be saved unless they hear? How can they hear unless one is sent? So this whole I just follow Jesus stuff is really just trash. Uh, you, you don't serve Jesus in isolation. Jesus is high priest and he has his priest in subordination to him to lead you with the word of the Lord. It doesn't mean that you can't pray to God by yourself. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you can't read your Bible. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that God has rank and order in the church. And we have to recognize that. Um, okay, so I, I'm coming to a close. Now, I'm coming to a close. I close. <laughs> now, 